Thank you, Ms. Christie, and good morning to you again. I told Wayne early this morning that this is getting to be a, a real fun habit of being able to uh, pinch hit for Michael, and I say this all the time, and I don't mean it uh, trite, and it is always a real honor and privilege to stand in for Michael. As Wayne said, he is uh, away leading a tour of Paul's travels. Wayne, I mean, uh, Michael's a great friend, have great respect for him, as we all know, he's a wonderful Bible teacher, so it's always just a lot of fun and a great honor to stand in his place. And it's appropriate that uh, Michael's leading a tour of Paul's travels because we're going to be investigating some of those this morning. But as we kick things off, let me tell you just one little factoid about me. Most of my life I've been involved in some type of uh, athletics, of sports. My younger days I played a little baseball and did a little wrestling. And I remember that our coaches in practice were always working on the fundamentals the basics. And as a young guy, I got so bored and tired with that, but they just drilled into us fundamentals. We even constantly worked on the starting position. Now, as an infielder in baseball, the starting position, excuse me, is uh, bottom down and glove up. In wrestling, the starting position is a balanced base. Now, why do we need to work on starting positions in sports to avoid problems down the road? In other words, in baseball, if we don't have the glove up and there's a hot shot coming at us, it may go through the wickets, it may go to the left or right, our reaction time to get the glove up is a little slow. So we need to start with the glove up, a balanced base in wrestling, and we don't want anyone just being able to touch us and push us right over. So a starting position is very important to avoid problems down the road. Now, we're not here to talk about sports this morning, but we are here to talk about a starting position position. We're here to talk about a starting position in the Christian life. And this is so important to avoid problems down the road in our Christian experience. Now, like you, I talk with a lot of Christians. And many times in these conversations, I'll be honest with you, my heart is crushed. I break. I'll ask questions like, are you going to heaven? I hope so. I'm trying. I'm working on it. You know, God helps those who help themselves. God does his part, but I've got to do my part. And I hear stuff like that, and I just want to cry. Or tragically, someone is killed in a car wreck, and I'll hear Christians say, I hope they didn't have any unconfessed sin in their life. Or even more tragic, someone takes their own life. And I've heard Christians say, how tragic, because we know that someone that commits suicide is never going to heaven. And on and on I could go. Let me just state clearly, everything I just mentioned is wrong. It's not biblical. And the reason Christians experience these things is because of a lack of understanding and embracing the starting position in the Christian life. If we understood and knew and were absolutely certain of the starting position in the Christian life, none of that confusion and noise that I just mentioned would ever occur. 
And if you struggle with anything remotely similar to what I just mentioned right there in those little bullet points, I hope that I can put on my pastoral hat today. I know sometimes I have a little prophetic edge to me, but I want to put on my hopeful pastor caring hat today and share with you what I said is not accurate. Those things are not true. And if you understand and embrace the starting position in the Christian life, you're not going to have all of that confusion, but you're going to experience joy, peace in your Christian experience. So what is that starting position? Paul refers to it as the truth of the gospel. And as Ms. Christie said, specifically justification. And that's what we're going to investigate. So I want you to turn over in your Bible to the book of Galatians or tap on your phone or tablet to Galatians. Now, we're getting ready to read some passages, but I need to set the table for you here so that you understand what's going on. Jesus has ascended back to heaven. Now his disciples, his apostles are preaching the gospel. Now, the mother church, home base, is in Jerusalem. And about 300 miles north of Jerusalem is the city of Antioch. And after a series of events, Paul the persecutor became Paul the preacher. And he landed in Antioch and was one of the Bible teachers in Antioch. And Antioch was a very metropolitan area. Half a million people lived here. And this became a base, a hub for missionary activity. Paul and his team would go out from Antioch and preach the gospel in surrounding areas. Well, they went into Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and they preached the gospel. People were saved. Churches were established. And then Paul and his team returned to Antioch to recharge their batteries. But also, coming out of Jerusalem, in the name of Jerusalem, in the name of James, were what we would call false teachers that we refer to as Judaizers. They would say, we represent the mother church, we represent James, but they had no uh, authority from them. They weren't. They were false teachers. And here, these false teachers went to Galatia, they went to Antioch, and they were preaching and teaching, listen carefully, that the truth of the gospel is faith in Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. Faith in Jesus plus our own personal works. That's what they were teaching. And so they had gone into Galatia preaching this behind Paul. And the Christians in Galatia were now confused. We heard Paul say this, but now the Judaizers are saying that. And they were totally confused. Paul hears about this and he is livid. And he fires off a letter that we know as the book of Galatians to the Galatian Christians to correct what was going on. Now, while Paul is in Antioch writing this letter, he also is being troubled by Judaizers. Judaizers were right there in Antioch with him. And so part of his letter is explaining to them, hey, I know what you're going through. They're right here on my doorstep as well. And he also gives a story about Peter, as you will see, who had traveled to Antioch. So we've got the Judaizers in Galatia. We've got the Judaizers in Antioch. Paul's writing to correct the Galatians, and he tells them about what's going on in Antioch right now while he's writing. Okay, all of that is background. Now, let's look at Galatians chapter number 1. You can read the intro, the greeting, and so on, but let's pick up with verse 6. Paul says to these 
confused Galatian Christians. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now jump over to chapter 2, verse number 11. Paul says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So Paul is writing about the truth of the gospel, and there are three things I want you to notice what he says about the truth of the gospel. These first two, we're going to go pretty quickly, and then we're going to camp out on the third one. The first thing he says here about the truth of the gospel is that it is singular. In other words, there is only one gospel. There are not multiple gospels. Now, go back to chapter number 1. And he says to these Galatian Christians, I'm amazed that you were so quickly after I left deserting the gospel that I preached to you for a different gospel. Now, here's what happened. These Judaizers came into Galatia after Paul left, and they started preaching salvation by works. They were distorting the gospel that Paul had preached. And Paul, in essence, says now there is a, quote, different gospel. And this different gospel was disturbing these Galatian Christians. And they were, by being disturbed, they were deserting the gospel. Do you see what's happening? These Judaizers came in and confused the Christians by distorting the gospel. And so they were turning to a works-oriented salvation. And Paul says, hey, you need to understand something. It's not really a different gospel. There's only one true gospel. When it comes to the gospel, it's not multiple choice. You can have A gospel, B gospel, C gospel. There is only one gospel. You see, this is not like, hey, do you use Mac or you use PC? Are you a Coke person or a Pepsi person? McDonald's, Burger King. You know, that's multiple choice. When it comes to the gospel, there are not multiple roads to God. There are not multiple ways to get right with God. There are not multiple ways to heaven. The gospel is singular. And Paul said, if anybody, including an angel from heaven, were to preach a gospel to you other than what I preach to you, let him be accursed. And we'll just stay with that translation. 
It's a little more than that. Okay? Now, what did Paul preach? Well, fortunately, we have a record of what Paul preached. If you'll look at the slide, I'm going to read from Acts 13. Acts chapter 13, Paul is in Galatia on his first trip. He's preaching, and in verse 38, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Okay, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Now verse 39, And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, I do not always understand Bible translators. You see this word freed here? It's the exact same word as justify in Galatians 2. Same word. Here they translate it free. In Galatians it's justified. Let me read this again in verse 39. And through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. What did Paul preach to the Galatians? We are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and not because of any works that we have done. That was the gospel. And that is the only gospel. And if anyone comes to you or to me and says, we have to do something to be saved, that is a false gospel. Because there is only one gospel. We are made right by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is clear all throughout the Bible. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter, in Acts 4, he's preaching and he says, there is salvation in no one else. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is one gospel, faith in Christ apart from works. And you say, Mo, that is so narrow-minded of you. Let me just pause here. I want to tell you, I'm not narrow-minded. If I am communicating to you that I'm narrow-minded, I apologize because I am miscommunicating. I am narrower than narrow-minded. <laughs> I am single-minded. When it comes to the gospel, it's not you pick your way and I'll pick my way and we all end up in heaven. No, when it comes to the gospel, there is one gospel. And Paul is livid that these Judaizers had come in distorting the gospel and disturbing these Christians. That's why he wrote this letter. And then the second thing I want you to notice here is that the gospel is going to be slandered. It is going to be spoken against. It's going to be scoffed at. Now, I want you to understand, when you believe on the single gospel, the only way to get right with God, I want you to know that gospel is going to constantly be under attack. Sometimes it's going to be attacked by legalists who will say, faith in Jesus is not enough. You've got to do something extra. Sometimes it's going to be attacked by liberals who say that gospel is unnecessary because there are multiple ways to the Father. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians, he said, we, he said, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, 
foolishness. I want you to understand that the gospel is going to be attacked. The reason I want you to know that is so that when the gospel that you believe in is attacked, you won't be rattled. You won't be surprised. There are all kinds of philosophies and old wives' tales out there that will tell you salvation is something else other than faith in Jesus Christ alone apart from works. So when you hear that, don't be shocked. Don't be alarmed. Don't be disturbed. Now, in Galatians 2, we are going to deal with one specific attack on the gospel, and it comes from a very unlikely source. Peter himself. Now, to understand what we just read, and we will reread it, I've got to give you some background. In the first century, the time of the early church, the time of the apostles, the Jewish tradition had evolved and expanded to say that Jews could not fellowship, have friendship with Gentiles. Especially, the Jews could not eat with the Gentiles. You see, to a law-abiding Jew, mealtime was sacred. They had very strict dietary laws. And this was a holy time. It was a worshipful time. And you could not, according to Jewish tradition, allow, in their words, Gentile sinners into this table fellowship because it was a sacred time. So that was the mindset in the time of the apostles. You may recall in the Gospels, Jesus was constantly getting into trouble because he was eating with the wrong people. But then in Acts chapter 10, something very incredible happens. Peter falls into a trance and has a vision. And there is a large sheet coming down from heaven, and in this sheet are all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And Peter hears the voice of the Lord say, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said to the Lord, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is unclean or unholy. And the Lord said to Peter, Peter, What I have cleansed, do not consider unholy. After the vision, Peter received instructions to travel to Caesarea to go to the house of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. Cornelius had gathered together his friends and family to hear Peter preach. Peter obeyed and went to the house of this Gentile. He walks in the door and he looks at Cornelius and he says, You know I ought not be here because it is not lawful for me to be fellowshipping with you. But I've received instructions from the Lord to be here. He preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his friends and family are saved. They are baptized. They receive the Holy Spirit. And Luke says in Acts 10, Peter stayed there several days. Let that sink in. Peter stayed in a Gentile's house several days fellowshipping with these new Gentile Christians. Then in Acts chapter 11, Peter returns to Jerusalem. No sooner had he set foot in the city limits, some of the people in the church said, Hey, Peter, the word on the street is you've been visiting with Gentiles and even eating with them. And Peter said, Let me tell you something. I went there and I preached Jesus and they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they received the same gift of the Holy Spirit that we Jews received. Who am I to stand in the way of the Lord? He got it. 
One gospel for Jews and Gentile alike. Later in Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch is founded. Now, Antioch is a big metropolitan city, half million people. People were coming to the Lord there, predominantly Gentiles. Peter wanted to see for himself what's happening in Antioch. So Peter makes the trek to Antioch to see what's going on in this church. And he gets there, and it's the same thing that he experienced in Caesarea at Cornelius' house. All these Gentiles have come to the Lord. He is celebrating with them. No doubt he's high-fiving with them. For days he's sitting there. He's eating with them. It is a buffet. Pork chops. Pulled pork barbecue sandwiches. Canadian bacon pizza. They are fellowshipping. They are having table fellowship. And no doubt, I bet these Gentile Christians were peppering Peter with questions. Peter, tell us, what was it like to walk with the Lord? What was it like to see him raise the dead? What was it like to hear his teachings firsthand? Listen, it was glorious times in the fellowship hall of Antioch Bible Church. It was great. But then one evening, Peter and other Jews were fellowshipping with these new Gentile believers. And all of a sudden, a very nervous, tense silence starts to spread throughout the room. And then a holy hush fell on the fellowship hall. Peter looked up over his barbecue sandwich. He looked at the door. And there were a group of stern-looking men, impeccably dressed, staring at the room. And the leader of the room locked onto Peter's eyes, staring a hole right through him. Peter and the rest of the guys knew exactly who these guys were. They had an armband on with the initials CP, Church Police. These were the Judaizers who had arrived from Jerusalem. Peter felt like a kid caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He slowly put down his sandwich, very sheepishly pushed away from the table. He stood up and he walked over to join the Judaizers, separating himself from these Gentile Christians. Upon seeing Peter do this, other Jewish Christians in the room stood up and followed his lead. Even dear, sweet Mr. Encouragement himself, Barnabas, got carried away in the hypocrisy. So now in the Antioch Fellowship Hall, you had the Gentiles over here. You had the Jews with the Judaizers over here. There was only one lone Jewish believer left sitting at the table with these Gentile Christians. Paul himself. Paul gathered his wits about him. He wanted to make sure he was witnessing correctly. And he realized exactly what was going on. These people were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Notice what he says. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of them all. Paul looked over and he saw that Peter and Barnabas and these Jewish Christians were not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. And in essence, what they were saying to these Gentile Christians is, you're not in the family. You have believed on the Lord, but you have got to add to your faith the Jewish law if you want to become one of us. One of us. In other words, they had created a separate gospel. And Paul said, I will not stand for this. And he stood up and he went nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball with Peter in the presence of everybody. Now, if you're my age or around my age, you might recall in 1975, we had the Thrilla from Manila. It was a boxing match between two of the greatest heavyweight champions ever, Muhammad Ali and Smokin' Joe Frazier. They were fighting in Manila, Philippines. So, of course, Ali dubbed it the Thriller in Manila. You don't get in the church world any bigger than Peter and Paul. What we are witnessing is the big shock in Antioch. <laughs> Can you imagine being in the room and having witnessed Paul in Peter's face? Here's what I want you to understand. The truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone, apart from works, will be slandered. It will be attacked. And sometimes the attacks are going to come from a least likely source. Sometimes it's going to come from well-meaning family members, well-meaning friends, old wives' tales that have just been handed down generation after generation after generation. What I want you to understand is we're about to talk about justification. That is the truth of the gospel. Anything else is error. So anything else is coming, it's error, and it will be an attack or slander on the true gospel. Don't be surprised, but don't be confused. Don't be disturbed. Stay the course in your faith. Now, I want you to know something else. And I don't have time to fully develop this. I just want to say it and move on. Sometimes we have to take a stand for the gospel, obviously for our own personal edification, but also for the good of others. We don't have time to go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. This is not the first time Paul's encountered these guys. He was on a previous trip to Jerusalem. And it said, Paul said, these guys came in as spies to spy out our liberty in Christ. And Paul said, I did not yield to them 
for one hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul said, I did not give in to this salvation by works, not for a second, because I did not want the gospel to the Gentiles to be distorted or confused. Listen, we stand against the attacks on the gospel, not just for our personal selves, but also for the good of other people and for the good of people coming after us. What's going to happen if we all go woke? What's going to happen if we all suddenly deconstruct our faith and start buying in to this heretical, non-biblical, nonsensical hogwash that's passed off under the guise of progressive Christianity? What's going to happen? I remember my professor in college said, Mo, always remember Christianity is one generation away from extinction. What if you and I don't take a stand for the truth of the gospel? It's going to have rippling effects on other people. That's why Paul is so livid. The eternal stakes here are incredible. So the truth of the gospel is singular. There's only one. It's going to be slandered. We've got to stand for it. And then thirdly, and this is the biggie, the truth of the gospel is sola fide. Say, Mo, what in the world is that? This is simply a Latin phrase that means by faith alone. And in the church, we use this phrase to refer to the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from any works that we have done. Now, I want you to know this doctrine of justification by faith alone, again, that we refer to as sola fide, by faith alone, is taught from one end of Scripture to the other. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's justification. Jesus taught this. In Luke 18, he said two men went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee who trusted in himself and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and said, Lord, I am so grateful that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I obey the law. I pay my tithes. I live a good life. The tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He just said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, that man went home justified. Not the guy trusting in himself. It's taught in scripture. But for years, it was, quote, lost in the church. And in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, quote, rediscovered justification by faith alone, sola fide. And this is what sparked what we call the Protestant Reformation. And we are still living under that today, thankfully. So justification, sola fide, is simply justification by faith alone, apart from works. Now... We could spend days here. I'm going to try to be just short, sweet, and to the point. But this is absolutely crucial that we understand this. So the first thing I'm going to do is give you a simple definition of justification. Okay, justification is a legal term. It is a term that we see in the court of law. It is a legal term whereby a judge declares a defendant right with the law because the defendant has met the demands of the law. Justification is a legal term 
whereby a judge declares that a defendant is right with the law because the defendant has met the demands of the law. Okay, now follow me. In a just and honorable court, the first demand is obedience to the law. If we obey the law, we are right with the law. So let's say you and I were accused of robbing a bank. So we go to the court of law. The charge is made against us, and we present evidence. Your Honor, there's no way I could have robbed that bank. I was 1,000 miles away on vacation. The judge looks at that and said, you are absolutely correct. In this instance, you have obeyed the law. You are justified. You are right with the law. You have obeyed the law as it relates to robbing this bank. But let's say that we got a speeding ticket. We go before the judge. Yes, Your Honor, I was speeding. I disobeyed the law. He said, your fine is $1,000. Let's make it 100 <laughs> We weren't speeding that much, okay? Okay, your fine is $100. We pay that fine. The penalty is paid in full. We've met the demands of the law. The judge looks at us and says, you are now justified. You are right with this court. All right, do you see that? We get right with the court by obeying the law, or if we disobey the law, by paying the penalty according to the law. And now we are right with the law. So in either case, we walk out of that court justified. The court can't hound us. The court can't retry us. We are right with the judge. We are right with the court. Make sense? Now, take that simple definition and let's apply it to justification in the Christian world. Now, let me give you an explanation here. The Bible teaches there is one God. He exists. And the Bible teaches this one God is judge over all. In James 4.12, James says, There is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. Now, this one God, who is the one judge, has a lot of characteristics about him, but two are particularly important for our discussion here. This God is holy. Isaiah 6, 3, angelic beings around the throne constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God has an intolerance for sin. A hatred for sin. We can't even fathom that. But God is 100% holy. God is also 100% just. He can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He can't look the other way. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham correctly and rhetorically asked this question. Will not the judge of the earth deal justly? The judge of the earth is going to deal justly. So we have a holy and just judge. And so the first requirement this holy and just judge makes upon us is perfection. The judge says, you want to be right with me? It's real simple. Obey all my commandments 100% of the time inside and out. Peter summarizes that in 1 Peter 1. He says... As he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your behavior. As it is written, be holy as I am holy. So a holy, just judge says, here's my demand. You be holy. 
that creates a problem for us. None of us are righteous. None of us are holy. No, not one. So this holy and just judge says, you've not given me perfect obedience inside and out 24-7. Therefore, you have to pay the penalty for unholiness. It's just part of God's character. It's part of God's nature. He can't do otherwise. What's that penalty? In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to hand out retribution to those who have not obeyed the gospel. He said they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see our predicament? We are defendants in a court with a holy and just judge. And this judge says, you owe me 100% perfection. We have not paid that. This holy and just judge says, therefore, you have to pay a penalty for your imperfection. We will pay that. We are the defendants in this cosmic court of law. And we're helpless. We are absolutely hopeless. One of Job's friends, Bildad, in Job 25, verse 8, verse 4, asked this question. How can a man be right with God? How can a man, a defendant, a person that I just described, get right with God? Now, if we were to ask the Judaizers that question, here's what they would say. You want to get right with God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and do your part. Do these works right here. Men, be circumcised. Everybody, obey these laws. That's what the Judaizers would say. And unfortunately, I can't explain it. Peter got caught up in that same thing. And Paul said, no. That is not the answer to the question. How do we get right with a holy and just judge? It is not through our works. Okay, now here we go. Follow me carefully here. Because we're going to stay in the text here. Verse 16, but when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is in Peter's face and he says, Peter, you are a Jew and you don't even keep the whole law. You don't 100% keep the law, and you're a Jew. Why then are you going to export that law to these Gentiles and compel them to keep the law? It makes no sense, Peter. Now, you got to keep in mind, toe to toe. Big shock and Antioch. This is tense. This is big stuff here. I'm telling you, if Peter and Paul were right here in the new, you and I would be trying to find the exit we were trying to be under our seat this is big stuff going on Paul is in Peter's face and then we come down to verse 15 Paul says to Peter Peter we are Jews by nature and not sinners among the Gentiles Paul says Peter you and I and the rest of the Jews in this room we are Jews by birth now he doesn't fully Amplify it here. He does in the book of Romans. You always want to read the book of Galatians in one hand and have Romans in the other hand. 
Galatians is sort of the abridged version and Romans is the unabridged version, if you will. So he says a lot of stuff in Romans that explains what's going on here. But I guarantee you, Peter understood. Paul said, Peter, you and I and all the other Jews in this room here, we are Jews by nature. We are Jews by birth. And the implication is we have a lot of rights and privileges. And he explains it in Romans. We have been entrusted with the oracles of God. We have been entrusted with the law of God. We have been entrusted with the knowledge and the will of God pertaining to life matters. We have rights and privileges. So what Paul is doing is building up the rights and privileges of the Jews and he said, to use your word, we're not like the Gentile sinners. Okay, so do you see what Paul's argument here? Jews, a lot of rights and privileges, Paul explains in Romans. We're not like the Gentile sinners. Okay, so see this. Now he brings in the big hammer. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, even though we have all these privileges that Gentile sinners don't have, nevertheless... Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, who is even we? Peter, even you and I and all these Jews who have all of these rights and privileges, even we don't trust in the law to get saved. But we put our faith in Jesus. Let me read verse 16 here and just see if you can figure out if Paul's trying to make a point. Nevertheless, despite our Jewish privileges, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, with our Jewish privileges, have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul, it's like he's in an endless loop here. Even we Jews know that we are not justified by the works of the law. We put our faith in Christ. And so that we're not going to be justified by the law. Because we know we're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. He said the same thing three times. He's making a point. We get right with God through faith in Christ. Not by the works of the law. Listen, I'm, I'm not trying to be cute here. But we don't even in earthly courts get justified by our good deeds. And in human relationships, we don't get justified by our good deeds. For example, imagine we've got a husband, and he comes home to his wife, and he said, Honey, I've got great news for you today. You're going to be thrilled. I have been faithful to you six out of seven days this week. I mean, don't you pity the fool that would say something that stupid? Or let's say you and I are hauled into a court of law and we are accused of robbing the bank. And we appear before the judge, yes, your honor, I robbed this bank on 4th and Maple. But your honor, if it pleases the court, may I point out that there are a hundred other banks in Nashville that I did not rob? Surely I'm going to get some grace because I only robbed one bank. I didn't rob a hundred. We don't use that rationale in human relationships. We don't use it in a court of law. Because even we know that 99% faithfulness is 100% unfaithfulness. 99% obedience is 100% disobedience. There is no work. There is no amount of works that we can possibly do to make ourselves right. 
That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, even we Jews by birth with all the rights and privileges, even we know that we don't get made right with God by doing works. So please, please, if there's anything in your being that wants to bring a work before God, get rid of it. I mentioned the the scenario, somebody's killed in a car wreck. I hope they didn't have unconfessed sin. I'm going to tell you something. I have unconfessed sin in my life right now. I don't know what it is. If I knew what it is, I would confess it. Do you think that our salvation, our being right or justified, is based on our 100% accurate knowledge of our sin in attitude, in motion? No. That's crazy. We are not justified by any work that we do. But we are justified through faith in Christ, Paul says. All right. Enter Jesus Christ. Remember, in the court of law, there are two demands from a holy and just judge. First of all, perfection, absolute obedience. Was Jesus Christ perfect? Yeah. Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Did Jesus pay the penalty for disobedience, the second demand of a holy and just God? Yes. At the end of the cross, he said, it is finished. Paid in full. Jesus Christ met the two demands, perfection and a penalty. Watch this. You and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, and the New Testament teaches that when you put your faith in Christ, I put my faith in Christ, we are united with Christ. We become one with Christ. And this union, this identification with Christ is so intimate that what belongs to Christ gets credited to our account as if we did it ourselves. What belongs to Christ, his perfection, his payment for penalty, gets transferred to our account. The penalty for your sins has been paid in full. The perfection that a holy and just judge requires, Jesus lived, that has been credited to your account as if you lived a perfect life. We've got to understand that righteousness, Paul says, does not come through the works of the law. He said in verse 21, if righteousness comes through the works of the law, Jesus died unnecessarily. Now, let me see if I can close this with an illustration to hopefully bring this together. And by the way, let me just say this. I know there's a lot of questions. We're not finished with this chapter. Next week, we're going to pick up where we leave off, and we're going to deal with the doctrine of sanctification. How can we Christians have righteousness on our account, yet we know in our practice we're not righteous? That's the obvious question. Okay, so we're not finished with this chapter. That was for next week. But let me conclude with an illustration. I am not suggesting something like this took place, but I think you'll get the point. I want you to understand that there is a holy courtroom. And in walks the judge, a holy, just judge. On one side of the courtroom is the accuser. On the other side of the courtroom 
is you, me. We are the defendant. And we have an advocate, a counselor by our side. And this judge says, this court is now in session. He looks to the prosecutor. He said, Lucifer, you can present your case against the defendant. The accuser of the brethren stands. And he says, Your Honor, I want to begin by reminding this court that this holy and just court has two requirements. Holy and just judge, you require perfection. And secondly, you require a penalty for imperfection. And Your Honor, I have undeniable evidence that this defendant has committed innumerable sins, fallen way short of your demand for perfection. But for decorum's sake, for brevity's sake, I will simply say, Your Honor, that this defendant has committed all kinds of sins in the areas of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This defendant is guilty. And I am asking you to hand out the judgment that you require, which is a payment of eternal death. The prosecution rests. The judge looks at our advocate and say, says, defense counselor, you can now present your defense. Our advocate rises and says, your honor, my defendant would like to say a word in their own behalf, but before they speak, your Honor, if it pleases the court, I would like to remind you that, yes, you do require perfection. And I would like to remind you, Your Honor, that I have lived a 100% perfect life. And, Your Honor, you require a payment, a penalty for imperfection. Your Honor, I want to remind you that I have paid that penalty. Now, my defendant would like to say a word. You may rise. Do I understand that you want to speak on your behalf? Yes, Your Honor. Your Honor, my defense is going to be brief, short. In fact, one word. My defense, Your Honor, is Jesus. That's all I have to say. The judge looks at you, he looks at me, he says, do I understand that you are putting your faith solely and completely in your advocate so that you can become right with this court? Yes, Your Honor. Well, it is the judgment of this holy and righteous judge that since you have placed your faith in your advocate, his perfection has been credited to your account. His payment for sin has been put on your account. This court requires two things, perfection and a penalty. By faith in your advocate, you have met those two demands. Therefore, it is the judgment of this judge that you are now justified. You are right with this court. You are right with this judge. And may I remind you, since you are justified, since you are right, there is now therefore no condemnation awaiting you. 
And I need to remind you that since you are justified, you are at peace with this judge. I want you to go forth from this courtroom and enjoy your new life of justification, of being right with the court because you've met the demands of the court. In Jesus, we are justified. We are right with God. I've asked Jason to come and lead us in one of my favorite hymns. It's from the 1700s, Rock of Ages. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I promise I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you uncomfortable. But I'm going to ask you to stand and just put all of your belongings in your seat or on the floor. Put your Bible down, your phone, your coffee. Just stand up, please, if you can. Or a seat. I want you to have nothing in your hands. And I just want you to hold your hands out in front of you. That's all. Just turn your hands up. Hold them out in front of you. I want you to look at your hands. There's a verse in this hymn that we're about to sing that says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. How do we get right with God? We bring Him nothing. I want you to notice what is not in our hands. Please notice what is not in our hands. Our baptism. Our church membership. Our observances of the Lord's Supper. The money we give away. All the good works we do. Nothing is in our hands. Because we are not made right through our works. Nothing. You may have forgotten everything I say. But you will not forget these empty hands. When you go throughout your day and you're driving your car. Just look at your hands. When you're out working in the garden, just put down the tools and look at your empty hand. That's how you get right with God. You bring Him nothing. You simply cling in faith to Jesus Christ. Good. 